SAS Backwards is sponsored by Austin Lawrence Group, specializing in demand gen for SAS. It sure is noisy. I deleted 100 emails from vendors just this morning. Your buyer has gotten better at ignoring you, and you're going to need a big idea if you want to cut through all that clutter. Austin Lawrence is just the right agency to help you find it. So if your campaigns are falling on deaf eyeballs, let's talk. Visit austinlawrence.com today and let's build something bigger. Welcome to the SaaS Backwards Podcast, where we reverse engineer the success of fast-growing SaaS firms and explore strategies CMOs and CEOs are using to drive their businesses forward. Welcome everyone to another episode of SaaS Backwards live from the Ascent Conference in San Francisco. My guest today is Amit Pandey. He's a CMO of Aviso. Is that how correct. we pronounce it? That's correct. And uh, it's a really interesting platform. And Amit, tell us a little bit about the company and uh, your role there. The company uh, can be thought of as, you know, an operating system for the revenue function. You know, we all need an operating system to run our lives on our computers. We've built this platform to be an OS for, you know, anyone that runs a revenue organization. My role there has evolved in three different seasons of the show. <laughs> Started off as the VP of Marketing and Strategy, then became the CMO, and now I run a lot of the revenue function as well, outside of marketing. So I love that positioning as an operating system. It's very evocative, right? It tells people that they're gonna run their business, from the sales point of view at least, on your software, right? That's right. What is the main problem that your product solves? And how did you guys discover that this was a problem or set of problems that needed attention? One of the things that we are seeing, whether it's in this economy or whether we're seeing it in the bull run, right, is that companies are living and dying by the predictability and strength of their revenue function, right? And so if you're a chief revenue officer or a CEO, the number one thing that matters is, you know, can you actually beat that number? So I'm going to tell you three things. The first is we actually help you beat the number predictably and consistently every time. And what this means is that whether you're a Honeywell or you're a Seagate, or you're some startup like Ring Central, which is now public, we help you get to that number within 98 to 99% accuracy, not just at the top-down number, but what 80% of those deals are actually going to make up that number. So that's the first problem we solve, is how do I help you beat your number? The second is, how do I help you trust your number? Because, you know, CFOs don't trust CROs, right? There's this kind of somewhat tenuous relationship between finance and revenue and marketing. And one of the things that we do with the Viso is that we say, well, let's not just trust the number, let's trust all the activities that are going on. You know, let's look at every conversation. Let's look at how effectively these sales reps are doing their emails and their meetings and you know, what's really moving a deal forward or not. Let's look at both the forest as well as the tree. So that's the second thing we do is that we bring all these other you know, cats that you need in a revenue function, your marketing team, your customer success team, your revenue operations, and you bring them all into one workspace. And then the third thing we do, which is something that I think CFOs and CIOs are really happy about, is we help you reduce a number. And I'll tell you what number that is. That is the number of sales tools you have. That is the insane amount of spend that you're putting on your CRM systems. You know, so we've been able to help some companies like Honeywell save over a million in a single division of CRM costs. And you know, so by doing these three things, you know, beat the number, trust the number, and then sort of reduce the spend number, if you will. We're 
finding that, especially the larger corporations and the mid-sized corporations, they like having all this in the operating system that we just spoke about. So beat the number, trust the number, and reduce the cost. Yes. Those are the three things. And how did you guys arrive at that, what seems like a pretty simple set of key problems? How did you find out about that? Lots of trial and error, lots of pain in the process too, right? Because over the first five years, and the only thing we were doing was beat the number, right? This company was originally founded by a guy from Wall Street and a guy who had founded Zora. And they said, well, how can we be so precise in Wall Street? And then all that we're doing in sales is like trusting of what a person puts in their CRM, right? So for the first couple of years, I think what helped us was just working with data forward companies and what I would call process forward companies. So I think companies like Ring Central, FireEye, Splunk, who were all very early and they wanted to use data more. That's how we solved the first problem. We said, hey, what are you trying to do in your forecasting process that you're not getting from your CRM? And then we made them design partners and you know that got us far. The challenge is during the same period of time, forecasting became a feature. Nobody wanted to buy a forecasting system anymore. So one of the big bets we took for the second product market fit, if you will, about you know, the trust the number, if you will, and bring everybody into this workspace is, you know, when the pandemic hit, every one of the players in our space and some of the largest CRM companies, you know, they doubled down in sales and marketing. Because they said, well, let's just tide this out. Let's see what's happening. I think we went the other direction and it really paid off. And we said, let's just really invest in product. Because at the end of the day, we said, when we come out of this pandemic, the world is going to ask, why do I need so many tools? Am I getting value from all these tools? So the way we found product market fit for the second part was that we actually just worked with a lot of our customers. And we said, hey, what's in your tool shed? You know, what's in your cupboard? And we're like, well, I got all these other tools that no one seems to be using. And we said, well, what if we built these 10 to 15 things in our own platform? So we didn't do any M&A. We didn't invest in really expensive engineers. We stretched our dollar, went overseas, just built teams around the world, and we just overbuilt product, which you know, I'm glad to say, especially in the last year, with the way the economy has gone, you were saying, wait, this is the product I wanted. I didn't want 20 products, I actually wanted this product. The third part is a bit tricky, right? But I'll just say one thing about it, which is that, you know, I think it helps to not have any holy cows in this business. If you talk to anybody about Salesforce, and you say, hey, I can help you reduce a Salesforce spend, the first thing they say is, ah, oh, that's too good to be true. But when you really start talking to them, and you ask them, hey, what percentage of your folks don't ever log into a CRM? You know, let's say someone like me in marketing or someone like you know, not in sales. And they say, well, actually 30% of our people maybe log in once a year. And you say, well, what if I could just bring you that information, but inside of Viso, instead of in CRM, you know, would you like to have that? And so we didn't attack the elephant. We just kind of went around and found, you know, where people were willing to make that trade-off for licenses that they weren't paying for anyway. You know, so if there's one true north out of this, it's that I think we just stayed very close to our customers. Yeah. You know, I really love that. There's a lot to unpack there. So it sounds like the product became a feature. That was maybe a meaning of life moment. Yeah. But then instead of going out and buying another company to answer a problem you've discovered or a series of problems, being willing to invest in your own product, to me, makes a lot of sense because down the road, we don't have the same kind of integration issues that people who've done M&A to get where they are. That's right. So I think there's a lot of good learning in there, and I really appreciate that. So I want to change the channel a little bit and move to how you are doing your own sales and marketing. So what are the most effective growth strategies that you're employing today, given the marketplace? And you've done a refresh of the website. Maybe that's a good place to start. 
Talk about your messaging, yeah. how you arrived at that and how you're getting that out into market. I think that one of the most important things we learned on the sales side was that when you're selling a new frontier way to manage your revenue process, your salespeople have to walk the talk. They can't just show up like salespeople from other, some other company or from Salesforce or Microsoft and sell the future. And so one of the things that uh, you know, we've done, which has been a really effective growth strategy for us, and I may, will make it very specific to Fortune 500 companies, which is an important area of growth for us, is that we said to our sales team, we said, we don't want you to ever demo. Because nobody wants a demo with bells and whistles and people pointing and clicking on a Zoom call you know, when you know, your cat's making noise in the background. That was the pandemic period, right? So one of our best growth strategies was we said, we don't want to lead with features. We don't want to lead with product. What we want to lead with is personas, moments of pain in their daily life, and where is it in that day, in that week, that Avizo actually adds value. You know, before I was a marketer, I used to be a designer. Right? I ran design teams, and with, I sort of brought some of this design thinking into our sales and marketing process, and I said, the way we enable our sales team, the way they talk about value, the way they even offer you an ROI analysis for free before you even come and talk to us, do the things that actually help us unlock growth in Fortune 500 because we very quickly learned in the Fortune 500 companies that they didn't know about 99% of the companies in Silicon Valley. They'd only heard about Microsoft and Salesforce. So when we went in and we took the partnership approach and said, let's invest a lot of money and time into this relationship for the first couple of months and show you what your world might look like within a visa that actually just helped us establish a lot of trust. And that's why we have Honeywell and Seagate and ServiceNow and some of these great companies. From a marketing perspective, it was actually a bit trickier. I would say that for the longest time, we led with the message of guidance. Everybody wants guidance in life. People want to be guided by AI also, right? I mean, at the end of the day, at least my personal vision for AI in the next, you know, 10 years is that, you know, can it actually guide you to have a better experience of wherever you're going, right? And so we led with AI guidance for a while. And then what happened is, as you would expect, the market caught up. Everybody started adding all those words into their lexicon. And then we said, well, a lot of our customers describe us as a single pane of glass. So we then went with that language. Guess what happened? A lot of other companies also started calling themselves single pane of glass. So what I'm going with this with our website and our messaging framework was that at some point we said, you know, let's test out this message of app retirement. You know, the idea that in the last 10 years, you acquired a lot of things, just like those subscriptions that you signed up for, you know, the Hulu that you don't use. And Wait, what, have you seen my uh, you seen my credit card bill? I've got that Hulu I don't use. I, I have Evernote is charging me right now for a product that I haven't used in a year. And so we started up-leveling our messaging to just addressing the problem directly and saying, I'm not going to talk about only helping you win more deals and higher win rates and such. Everybody talks about that. Let's actually talk about two things. One, how can we help your salesperson get better with AI? We're not going to take their job away. And number two, how can we help you as a leader actually take out some of that app crap, if you will, and, you know, just bring... So I love villainizing things, like making a villain out of something, especially you're not taking on one, so that this is a defenseless villain that yeah. you can go attack. That's really great. You know, when you have just one enemy, they can counter your messaging. But here, we're just sort of saying, hey, you have a whole bunch of stuff that you're probably not optimizing or using. Let's simplify the estate and make you more effective and cost less to run your ops, right? Absolutely. And this Lovely is the, message. 
And this is the whole inspiration with generative AI, right? The inspiration is that if we can have one person, one experience, one interface that can help us with simplifying our life, you know, I kind of feel we're missing that in sales. So let's talk about the AI and the product. How does the AI work to make this product support the salespeople? The first thing that the AI does is that, you know, it acts a lot like that, you know, that coach at the gym that tells you things about you that you didn't know. All those shortcuts you were taking, all the stuff you were eating that gives you that carb face, right? And so the way we apply AI in a very practical way is that we snapshot like a time machine every single thing that a sales rep or a sales team does in their CRM. Everything that they do in their emails, everything that they do in their calls. And what we do is we then look back and say, you know, don't just trust the number that your gut's calling out. Based on your past behavior, this is what's actually working. So that's the first thing the AI does, is that actually, you know, gives you, if you will, a BS meter and says that, look, not only am I, I telling you... I would prefer you, to call that a retrospective analysis. A retrospective analysis on where you did well and we expect you to do better. But, you know, he, this is even more interesting. What are all these deals that are in your pipeline that you don't think you're going to close, but me as an AI, I have high confidence you're going to close that deal. So we're validating the numbers, taking the BS out, and also elevating the status of deals that a sales manager might be discounting. Absolutely. So then you can say, look, I know which deals are going to close, so let's spend this actual time discussing what else we can bring in from the future. The second thing it does is that by listening to every conversation, but not just in a simplistic way of call recording tools, actually connecting it back to what your forecast was. You can say, well, you just forecast something last Monday. It looks like in the last two weeks, you and your executive sponsor haven't really had a conversation and you're predicting to close this deal at the end of June, but I don't see any procurement conversation yet. Now, of course, if you do this in the form of, we do this in the form of nudges, right? You don't want to be draconian about it. You want to nudge that behavior and say, well, you could still override it. I think this is really important. It's subtle, but managers and reps and leaders, they want to be able to override any number AI gives them. And they want to be able to override any nudge that AI gives them. Because then you can always look back and say, gosh, why are you ignoring everything the AI is telling you? you know, maybe they is going to sort of help you out. So that's the second thing we do is that we mind these conversations with the AI, use a lot of NLP and such. And the third thing we're doing, which we're very excited about, we announced this at NYC two weeks ago, did a stealth unveil there, and then at Gartner last week is we're calling it, we didn't anthropomorphize it, we're calling it Mickey all caps. It's a machine intelligence and knowledge interface. And we're saying it's this, think of it as an AI chief of staff, okay? Which in some sense is not like an assistant. Because an assistant can schedule a meeting for you, right? But a smart chief of staff, and you know, I wish we all had one, right? But a smart chief of staff is like that smart person you know that can go do an earnings call research on Schlumberger last week and come back to you with the three things you want to know. So these are some of the things that we're doing. We're saying AI is really powerful. You're using it in the B2C world. Why don't we take all the best AI, predictive modeling, NLP, computer vision, generative AI, and apply this to hard problems in sales, and you know, ultimately help salespeople focus on what they want to do most, which is being fan of. So is there a generative AI component in the product, or is that coming? There is a generative AI component in the product now. We are in beta with, with Mickey. What we're doing with it is a couple of things. One. Simple things like earnings call research or public research that helps you be more prepared for your accounts. Second, you know, this whole idea of writing cute emails with ChatGPT is going to get old really fast because nobody trusts ChatGPT with their business data, right? So one of the things we're doing is we're saying we'll give you segmented, you know, private approaches to this data coming into a platform like ours. 
But I'm not just going to help you write a smarter email. If you and I have been talking for the last few months about this podcast, then, you know, my next email should you, to you should have the history of all our conversations. So there should be things. contextualized Absolutely. conversations. Absolutely. Cool. I want to change gears a little. So imagine you go into the next room and you find yourself seated next to a SaaS founder and they're not as experienced as you. They're a subject matter expert that built some software and they're about to go to market. What key advice would you give to such a, a founder trying to launch into a marketplace? Maybe similar to yours, but not a direct competitor. One piece of advice I would definitely give them is something that a very smart founder once told me. They said that, you know, when you're a product guy, you're always trying to build your way out of things. When you're a sales guy, you're always trying to sell your way out of things. And if you're a marketing guy, you're always trying to storify your way out of things. And he said, and I've experienced this myself the hard way now with our teams, is that you need to know what the hardest problem is at any given moment in time in your startup. Maybe your website sucks. Maybe your product sucks. But you've got 10 people ready to talk to you. Maybe that's the most important thing. So depending on what your strong suit was before you became a founder, you want to be very careful about not trying to over-engineer something or oversell something because that's going to be your natural instinct. You know, and you ideally want to take a step back and be like, well, how do I get people who can actually help me correct my blind spots? It requires letting go of ego and some control. Very difficult for founders to do. But I think the best founders I've met, they're able to take a step back and say, I want to be the quietest person in this room. So my second piece of advice would be that if your revenue is going to grow 10 times or 20 times and your team's going to grow 10 or 20 times, Man, you got to psychologically grow 20 times too, right? Because otherwise you're going to be the same person you were when you started the company and you as the founder or the CEO could become the biggest bottleneck in the company without realizing it. And, you know, I think my final piece of advice would just be that, you know, a lot of times your investors can sway you and the market can sway you in such a way that you, you know, maybe consider them as more important than your employees. You know, at the end of the day, if you've got employees who are in it not just to, you know, win the big bucks, but also because they really care about their mission and you treat them well no matter, you know, how the environment, they're always going to remember that and you will actually have the legacy you wanted to create, not just a you know, great startup. There's never been a more exciting time to actually do a startup, especially with AI. So, you know, I appreciate the question. Yeah, that's a great one. I think it's a great place to land episode two. I mean, thanks so much. If people want to learn more about the company, where can they find out about it? They can go to aviso.com or look me up as Amit Pandey on LinkedIn and, and I'd be happy to tell them more about what we've learned along the way. Awesome. And if you'd like to reach me, I'm on LinkedIn slash in slash Ken Lempit. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do so wherever podcasts are distributed. Amit, thanks again. Great episode. Absolutely. Really Absolutely. enjoyed meeting you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the SaaS Backwards Podcast, brought to you by Austin Lawrence Group. We're a growth marketing agency that helps SaaS firms reduce churn, accelerate sales, and generate demand. Learn more about us at www.austinlawrence.com. You can email Ken Lempet at kl at austinlawrence.com about any SaaS marketing or customer retention subject. We hope you'll subscribe, and thanks again for listening.